Take your Bibles out and uh, find Daniel chapter 2. The God who raises up and puts down kings and kingdoms. Daniel 2. Got it? Verse 1, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon." Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you've given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you've made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring, them in before, bring me in before the king 
and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Ariok brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he's made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell you, now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beast of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you to rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with a soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix one another in marriage, uh, mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this, 
The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you've been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But, ba uh, but Daniel remained at the king's court. Daniel 2 is one of the pivotal chapters in all of the Bible. Anybody wishing to make sense of history and of prophecy and of end time events has to pay attention to Daniel chapter 2. Now Daniel chapter 2 has been referred to as being the prophetic alphabet because in it you find the ABCs of Bible prophecy. It's been said the book of Revelation is the XYZ of Bible prophecy and Daniel is the ABC of Bible prophecy. Now we know there's been a resurgence lately about end time events. World headlines I think have spurred this on to, to some degree. Many people wonder if perhaps we're living during the end times. It's been indicated in polls that 45% of Americans believe that there will someday be a battle of Armageddon between Jesus and the Antichrist. Scores of Americans now indicate that they expect a high likelihood that Jesus may return for His church even within their lifetime. Now, I say that to simply point out that there's a renewed interest in Bible prophecy. It's a good thing if it leads people to seek the face of the Lord and to know Him. But it's not a good thing if we're just seeking to know about end-time events just to satisfy curiosity. Bible prophecy uh, is always intended to draw people closer to the Lord who is in charge of history. And it ought to create in us a desire to live holy lives and to long for what God has in store for His people. Now with that being said, we move into chapter 2. Chapter 2 paints a picture of the world empires from 600 years before Christ all across the centuries until Christ returns to set up His kingdom on the earth. Now you'll notice this dream was given to a pagan king. Now we need to review again for a moment what's going on here with Nebuchadnezzar coming into Jerusalem in 605 B.C. We, we begin at that point with what is referred to in the Bible as the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles begin here, Jerusalem being overrun. They'll continue until the return of Christ at His second coming to set up His millennial reign. In Luke 21, 24, Jesus says, They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. He was speaking there, of course, about the Roman invasion in 70 A.D. 
And all that would continue until the completion of the times of the Gentiles. And so we're in the times of the Gentiles. Now I want you to see the dream that disturbed. Verse 1, we're told when this dream took place. And we're told that Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, plural. And he was so disturbed by his dreams that he could not sleep. Now, folks, we've all had nights like this, times when we take our troubles to bed with us. He was faced with a royal case of insomnia. You didn't get that, did you? A royal case of insomnia. Ha, 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 ha. You're a little slow tonight, right? Well, the fact that he was the king didn't mean that he had escaped this. Oftentimes, leaders find no rest. Uh, many of you learned in your past that the pressures of life increased as power and position increased. Mark Quartz used to be a leading pastor in North Carolina. Uh, he's passed away now. He used to tell some of us, as your church grows and your staff grows, be prepared, your troubles are also going to grow with the blessings. A student asked Charles Spurgeon on one occasion about the size of Spurgeon's church and then he complained that he himself only had about a hundred people attending his church. And Spurgeon said to that student, he said, don't you worry about that. In the day of judgment, a hundred people is going to be a gracious plenty to have to give an account for. Leaders sometimes can't sleep. They lay awake solving companies' problems. They're hiring and firing staff in their minds. They're figuring out who to give raises to. Maybe new personnel procedures, new mergers perhaps with other companies, new investment strategies. They're worried about all those sorts of things. Here's Nebuchadnezzar. Though he's the mightiest man in the world, humanly speaking of course at the time, here's a man who can't sleep. Folks, you know what it reminds me of? You remember in Esther chapter 6 verse 1 when the king couldn't sleep and he called for the books of the king's chronicles to be brought in and read to him and as those chronicles were read to him, remember, he read about Mordecai and he said, oh wait a minute, that man Mordecai, has anything been done for him? And they said, no, not yet. And you'll remember that spurred him on to do something to reward Mordecai. So the king in the book of Esther couldn't sleep because God didn't let him sleep. Because God had a purpose in keeping him awake so that the chronicles would be read to him. Well, Nebuchadnezzar's having trouble sleeping and he's having this dream because God is about to reveal something to him. God's behind this. Nebuchadnezzar was finally so flustered and, and fearful that he called in all his wise men. And you'll notice from verse 2 that verse 2 breaks the wise men down into four different classes. Uh, there in verse 2 it says, The king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dream. So they came in and stood before the king. Now folks, we know that today people who don't know God still oftentimes run after median, mediums and 
those who claim that they can tell the future, palm readers and people like that. In 1996, according to Brett Selby in Bible in the News, a CNN news report estimates at least 300 of today's Fortune 500 companies use astrologers in one way or another. In the same article, he pointed out that Ford Motor Company executives consulted astrologer Joyce Gilson of Sherman Oaks, California for good dates to introduce their redesigned Taurus, itself named after the second sign of the Zodiac. One New York psychotherapist, psychic counselor, and professional astrologer cites trade publications showing that Americans spend more than $12 million a month calling psychic hotlines an average of about 10,000 calls a day. Staggering. Now what does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say about consulting mediums? Well... Listen to Isaiah chapter 8, verses 19 and 20. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living to the teaching and to the testimony? In other words, to the word of God. Not to the mediums, not to the spiritists but to the word of God. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They have no light. Those who go after mediums and horoscopes and and fortune tellers and all that kind of stuff, he's saying they do it because they don't have any light in their soul. They don't know the God who's able to tell the future. And so they run after all these other things. Now verse 3, notice that while verse 1 said he had dreams, one dream in particular disturbed him. He was so anxious about it, he said, I've just got to know what this one dream is about. Now oftentimes in in the Old Testament, you'll remember according to Hebrews 1.1, in the Old Testament, God sometimes spoke to his people through dreams and visions. Now the writer of Hebrews went on to say in these last days he's spoken to us through his son. But in former times he would speak to us sometimes in dreams and in visions. And so God had a message for this pagan king. Now as I pointed out in our first lesson a couple of weeks ago, verse 4 Uh, of chapter 2 all the way through the end of chapter 7, the book of Daniel is written in Aramaic. That was the language of the day in many parts of the world. Now how fitting this is. Because in chapters 2 verse 4 through chapter 7, it's addressing matters concerning the Gentiles. And it's written to Gentiles and God inspired His message in those chapters in a language that they would understand. God wants His people to understand His Word. Well, verse 4, they address the king with the typical elaborate oriental uh, courtesies. They come in, say, O king, live forever. Now in verse 5, there's an uh, interpretation issue. In In the King James Version, Nebuchadnezzar says, It's gone from me, indicating he'd forgotten the dream. 
Many other translations say, I have firmly decided, meaning he decided he wasn't going to tell them the dream. Now really a case can be made for either translation and that's why the translators are divided. But either way it doesn't make a whole lot of difference whether he forgot the dream or whether he deliberately didn't uh, want to tell it to them. The point still the same. He knew that if they were genuine wise men who could do what they claimed that they could do, they ought to be able to tell him the dream. If they couldn't tell him the dream, then he would know that they were fakes and frauds to begin with, and so he was going to do away with them. Why would he need, why would he need wise men who were nothing more than fakes or frauds? So again, they're told that if they cannot also tell him the dream, and the interpretation of the dream, they're going to be destroyed. Well, knowing what we know about Nebuchadnezzar and sometimes his violent deeds, that was no idle threat. There's also the promise of great reward if they can tell. Verse 7, you see him beginning to stall. Verses 8 through 11, they're arguing back and forth. No, you tell us. No, you know, the back and forth. Finally, Nebuchadnezzar basically says, if that's your final answer, then you've got to die. Then in verses 12 and 13, uh, we see the decree going out. And so Daniel is being sought as well. Remember in chapter 1, Daniel was being trained and prepared to be a part of this group of the wise men. That's why he's included in the death sentence. Because he's being trained up from a young man to be in this classification of wise men. Now when we come to this scene here, He's probably only about 18 years of age. And so at this point, Nebuchadnezzar is relying on his wise men that he's had for years and years. But because Daniel's already in training along with his friends, most believe Daniel's life, uh, from what stayed here in the text, Daniel's life and the, the lives of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were just as much threatened as the older wise men. Because again, the decree is made to destroy all of them. Now folks, I want you to notice several lessons at this point. First of all is the inability of human power. Though Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man on the earth, he couldn't figure out what his dream meant. And we not only see the inability of human power, but the inability of human wisdom. With their inability, all the wisdom of pagan religion is debunked once and for all. Here were the Babylonians who had written books on interpreting dreams, but they were utterly helpless to retrieve the dream itself. And so as Joseph Seiss wrote, if these men failed, it was the lying prostrate of all the wisdom, power, and art of man. And folks, this really reveals the true condition of the human heart. Apart from revelation from God, human wisdom is worthless and it can't save. Wisdom and salvation belong to God and only to God. And so the inability of human power and the inability of human wisdom. And that's what we see here with these wise men. 
we see the bankruptcy of human wisdom. What's Paul say about that to the Romans and to the Corinthians? That in all of man's wisdom seeking to know God, man has not come to know God that way. That the wisdom of men is nothing more than foolishness. And in man's wisdom, so oftentimes what we do is we set aside the, the, we set aside the righteousness of God and try to plug in our own righteousness in His place. And it will not work. It's bankrupt. All the wisdom, the power, and the abilities of man in the final analysis are not able to save men. We need God. We need God. Well, I want you to see secondly here the Daniel who dared beginning in verses 14 to 18. Here again we see, we see the composure and the maturity of Daniel. Now folks, does his composure and maturity here, does it surprise anybody? It shouldn't. Back when you remember... Back into chapter 1, verse 8. 14, 15-year-old boy, he purposes in his heart that he's not going to defile himself, that he's going to remain true to his God. I mean, imagine a 15-year-old boy with that kind of maturity back in chapter 1. Does it surprise us here in these verses that Daniel is so calm and cool and composed and mature? Shouldn't surprise us at all. But here they come for Daniel. Daniel. Daniel doesn't really know what all's transpired at this point. He asked why the king's so enraged. I want you to notice that Arioch answered Daniel. Now that says something to me also. Already from chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar's cabinet members, if you will, they've come to have a deep respect for Daniel. He takes time to answer Daniel. Now in verse 16, Nebuchadnezzar must already know of the wisdom and the integrity of Daniel and so he grants Daniel the time. He doesn't accuse Daniel of steal, uh, stalling for time. Daniel says, you've you got to give us time on this. And, and there's a God in heaven who will give you the answer that you're looking for. And so the king kind of steps back. Says, okay, gives Daniel that amount of time. Again, I, I'm just trying to show you that that ought to say something to us that already the king and, and his various cabinet members, they, they must have seen something different about Daniel, right? They're already beginning to see there's something to this young man. I mean, here's a young man of, of character and wisdom and nobility. And so Daniel's request here is, is granted. Notice what Daniel immediately does in verses 17 and 18. It says, Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. So what did Daniel do? He prayed. He prayed. What's James 1.5 say? 
If any of you lack wisdom, let him do what? Let him ask of God. What's James 5 say? The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man does what? Accomplishes much. Daniel and his friends locked themselves away in prayer. And the secret was revealed to Daniel by God in a vision. Not in a dream, but in a night vision. And, and then what does Daniel do? Notice what he does next because so oftentimes we fail to do this. I mean, you would think if your life was on the line and God had revealed this to you, what would be the temptation? You'd immediately go running out to the king to tell him you had an answer, right? But what does Daniel do? He takes time to praise God. He takes time to give God the credit, to thank God, and to praise God because God has heard his prayer and the prayers of his friends. He didn't neglect to return and give thanks. Isn't that a lesson to us, folks? So oftentimes we pray and ask for something, God gives us an answer and we just run right ahead of it with it. And we don't take time to thank God for giving us the answer. And he gives credit to God. He gives all the credit to God. Look at what he began saying there in verse 24. Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to, to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king and I'll show the king the interpretation. He brought Daniel before the king in haste and said to him, I, I found one of the exiles. The king declared to Daniel there in verse 26, uh, are you able to make known to me the dream that I've seen and its interpretation? Look at what Daniel's answer is there beginning in verse 27. Daniel answered the king and said, No wise man, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. What's he doing? Giving God the praise, giving God the glory. All through the book of Daniel, Daniel and his friends do that. They point the pagan king and the cabinet members, they, they're constantly pointing them to God. And they're constantly saying, no, 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 it's not us. It's God. Don't give credit to us. We're just the messenger boys. Give glory to God. They're constantly saying that throughout the whole book. Now thirdly, I want you to see the dream uh, detailed beginning in verse 31. The dream is both simple and strange. The king saw an enormous statue made of four different metals, a head of gold, chest of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet and toes of iron mixed with clay. Now the statue... The statue isn't doing anything. The statue isn't moving. It's not speaking. What's, what's the importance that we see in the statue? There must be some other clue to the statue. If it's not doing anything, if it's not saying anything, there must be some other message in it, right? And there is. 
What's the distinction? The different kinds of materials and the different kinds of metals in it. Those different kinds of materials are going to reveal something about the coming kingdoms of the world. Then suddenly a stone strikes the feet, shattering the entire image. The pieces are blown away and, and only the stone is left and it becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. Now I want you to note two facts right off. First of all, there is a progressive deterioration in value from top to bottom. Silver, for instance, is not as valuable as gold. Bronze is not as valuable as silver. And so there is a deterioration in the value. But at the same time, there's an increase in strength. Gold is soft. Silver stronger than that. Bronze stronger. Iron strong, strongest of all. And so while there's a descending value... There's an increasing strength. Notice also that when you get to the bottom, while there is iron, the strongest of all, it's mixed with what? With clay. Showing what? Showing some instability. Even in the midst of the strength, there's some instability, some frailty. Now Daniel explains the dream. Each metal stands for a world kingdom. The first is identified, Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, uh, King, you're the head of gold. The Babylonian Empire began in 606 B.C. and it lasted all the way down to 536 B.C. Now it's fitting that Babylon would be called the Golden Kingdom because it was saturated with gold. When Herodotus, the Greek historian, visited Babylon about a hundred years after Nebuchadnezzar's reign, he wrote that he had never seen so much gold nor even imagined that there could be so much gold in the world. That's what he found at Babylon. Jeremiah 51.7 says Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunken. Now we learn from Daniel 8 that the next two are the, the Medo-Persian Empire and the Greek Empire. The chest and the arms of silver represent the Medo-Persian Empire which went from 538 B.C. down to 331 B.C. And what do the two arms represent? The Medes and the Persians. There, there's two arms to the empire, one, one of the Medes and one of the Persians. Then the third is Greece, represented by the belly and thighs of bronze. It began under Philip of Macedon, then his famous son Alexander the Great. Bronze is used to, to symbolize this kingdom. Alexander began to dress his soldiers, by the way, in bronze metallic armor of the period. The fourth kingdom, while the scripture doesn't specifically say this is Rome, history indicates that it must be Rome. Because the Romans conquered Alexander's empire uh, through what became known as the Iron Legions of Rome. The Roman legions were noted for their ability to crush all resistance with an iron heel. 
And in verse 40, it says it breaks in pieces and, and crushes. The Roman Empire was ruthless. They crushed everybody who stood in their way. Now, by the way, what happened to the Roman Empire? It divided into east and west. And what do we have here? Legs. Two legs. Corresponding uh, to two legs of iron. Corresponding to the eastern and western aspect of the Roman Empire. Now it's highly significant that no world empire ever arose after the Roman Empire broke up. It's out of the old Roman Empire that what we call western civilization arose. Now in a sense though the old Roman Empire no longer exists, its influence still does exist and it's felt through all the nations that came out of the territory that it once ruled. Now there's some guessing as to what the ten toes of, of the uh, image's feet might mean. It, it, it must mean that in the end times during the period of the Antichrist there's going to be a ten kingdom confeder confederation that rules with the beast. Many have seen in those ten toes a revived Roman Empire. It'll be strong like the old Roman Empire, but weak because it'll not truly be unified. And that's why we see the iron mixed with clay. Folks, already we're seeing things like the European Common Market Alliance that came into being in 1957 under the Treaty of Rome where groups of nations in Europe have come together for economic reasons. Now, now different numbers of nations are always kind of coming in and falling out. I mean, that the numbers are in a, a state of flux, but no doubt at the end there's going to be some type of coalition of, of kingdoms. Dr. Justice Thurman, a sociologist at Columbia University, says, The UN bureaucracy sees itself as a sort of world government in the making. Now look at verses 45, uh, 44 and 45. Look at what he says there. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God is made known to the king what shall be after this, the the dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. Here's a fifth kingdom. What's that fifth kingdom represent? The kingdom of Christ. Christ's kingdom at his second advent. Now, now some have tried to make this refer to the first advent of Christ. And there's some weakness to that. Let me... I want to read to you what Walford says about this. Uh, just stay with me because what he's going to argue is that verses 44 and 45 better represents what's going to happen at the second advent of Christ. Not the first advent, but the second advent. What was the first advent? When Christ was born at Bethlehem. What's the second advent? The second coming. And Walvert is going to argue that verse 44 and 45 refers to the second advent. By the way, James Montgomery Boyce, a, a reformed writer, also argues 
that it better fits with the second advent. Walvard says, in general, expositors may be divided into premillennial and amillennial interpretation with the postmillennial view being included as a variation of amillennialism. We've, we've talked about premillennialism and amillennialism and postmillennialism. If you weren't here for that introductory lesson, sorry, I've got, to, I've got to move on tonight because of time. You'll have to ask me later. But according to both amillennial, uh, uh, amillennialarians and some postmillennialists, I'll get my words out, the kingdom of God, which is here mentioned, is that which was introduced by Christ at his first coming. This, of course, presupposes the destruction of the image by the church in succeeding centuries. This view is confidently offered as if it were supported by history. Leupold, for instance, who was a great expositor, while conceding that there were many factors in the destruction of Rome, states all students of history are ready to grant that the Christian church was able to salvage out of the wreckage of the Roman Empire all elements that were worth conserving. But it's just as true that the Christian church broke the power of pagan Rome. The disintegrating and corrupt empire crumbled through decay from within as well as through the impact of the sound morals and the healthy life of Christianity that condemned an immoral Rome. Christianity was in a sense God's judgment upon sinful Rome. But then he goes on to write, The principal difficulty is that as a matter of fact, Christianity was not the decisive force that broke the Roman Empire. The main reason was its internal decay and the political conditions which surrounded it. Further, the decay of the Roman Empire extended for more than a thousand years after the first coming of Christ. In other words, the time factor was greater than the period from Nebuchadnezzar to Christ. To have such a long period of time described in the symbolism of a stone striking the feet of the image and the chaff being swept away by wind simply does not correspond to the facts of history. In view of the very accurate portrayal of preceding history by the image, it is a reasonable and natural conclusion that the feet stage of the image, including destruction by the stone, is still future and unfulfilled. There's certainly no evidence, 1900 years after Christ, that the kingdom of God has conquered the entire world. Not only is there no scriptural evidence, whatever, that the first coming of Christ caused the downfall of Gentile world power, which is still very much with us today, but express prophecies relating to the second advent of Christ picture just such a devastating defeat of Gentile power. Revelation 19, which all agree is a picture of the second coming of Christ, is expressly the time when Jesus Christ assumes command as King of kings and Lord of lords. It is declared that at that time he should smite the nations and he shall rule them as with a rod of iron. And so again, he's just, he's just making the evidence here, making the point that verse 44 and 45 refers to when Christ returned. Not his first advent, but his second advent. Now the key thing to note at this point is that when Christ returns, what's going to happen to all earthly kingdoms? They're destroyed. 
Christ coming to an end, uh, uh, Christ coming, bringing an end uh, to the to the kingdoms of this world brings an end to all things created by man's power and by man's hands. It's the second coming of Christ that brings an end to the nations of the world, the kingdoms of the world as we know them. Now quoting, interestingly enough, quoting from Psalm 118.22, that, that's the verse that talks about the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone. The New Testament writers use that image too, don't they? Peter uses that image, speaking of Christ. The... the Stone that the builders rejected has become what? The chief cornerstone or the capstone. There's a bit of interesting history to that. James Montgomery uh, Boyce writes about this as do others. There's an old rabbinic parable. uh, The Jewish wisdom writings that tell a story about Psalm 118 and Christ, this rock that becomes the capstone. Now listen to what the Jewish rabbis said about that. When Solomon's temple was being built, it was forbidden for the sound of hammers to be heard at the job site because it was a holy place of worship. You can't have worship with construction going on in the background, so it had to be quiet. What this meant for the construction was that each and every 20-ton stone had to have a shop drawing and was made several miles away in the quarry. Several miles away, each stone was carefully cut for its exact spot in the temple. From the very start, there was a plan for each stone. The very first stone to be delivered was the capstone, but that's the last stone needed in construction. And so the builder said, what's this? This doesn't look like any of the first stones we need. Put it over there for now. Well, years went by and the grass grew over the capstone and everyone generally forgot about it. Finally, the construction was done and the builder said, send us the capstone. And the word came back from the quarry, we already did. Now, this is a story of the rabbis, okay? The builders were confused. Then somebody remembered what they had done with the very first stone sent to them. It was taken from its lowly position among the overgrown weeds where it had been forgotten and it was honored in the final ceremony to complete the temple. Thus the scripture says the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. What's the image here? This statue, all the coming kingdoms of the world until Christ returns. And when Christ returns, he's described as that rock that smashes all the others, brings all the others to an end, sets up his kingdom, and it grows in this mountain that fills the whole earth. So what's he describing in Daniel 2? That all the kingdoms of the world are coming to an end. Earthly kings and presidents and powers and parliaments are not in charge. God is. All of them one day are coming to an end when Christ returns. 
And he and he alone will be king over all the earth. King of kings and Lord of lords. In heaven there will only be one king and one kingdom recognized. And that's the kingdom of our Lord and Christ, the Lord Jesus. But until then, I want you to notice in prophecy what Daniel 2 does. It gives us... See, this is why some later critics of the Bible who denied the authenticity of the Bible came along and said, Daniel could not have been written as early as it purports to have been written. This is what liberal critics who deny the Bible said. Why did they say that? Because it's so accurate. Because after the Babylonians, who was next? The Medo-Persians, who was next? The Greeks, who was after them? The Romans. Perfect. Perfect accuracy. And they said, there's no way the Bible can tell us something like that with 100% accuracy. And so they said, instead of writing as a prophet about events yet to come, he must have already lived through all of those events and been looking back on them writing as a historian rather than as a prophet. But you see, there's even a problem to that because even those who said Daniel was a 2nd century B.C. figure, many of the things in the book of Daniel, even if he would have been writing as his historian up to that point, many of the things were yet future, and so there was still a prophetic element to it. And so their own argument collapses. But again, the reason they said that to begin with is because they did not believe in prophecy. And as I told you in our opening lesson, there's no reason whatsoever to deny the authenticity of the book of Daniel and that it is a book of prophecy. And if it perfectly tells us from this time, from Daniel's period on, 6th century B.C., God reveals to Daniel what all the coming kingdoms of the world are going to be with 100% accuracy. Does it surprise you that God can do that? It shouldn't. But all the kingdoms of the earth are going to come and go and then one kingdom, when Jesus returns, He's going to be that rock that smashes all the others. And the stone that the builders rejected will become the chief cornerstone. Amen? Well, notice what Daniel says about that kingdom. It's not made by human hands. It'll smite all earthly kingdoms. It's universal and eternal and it is immutable. Now, folks, notice what Daniel does in verse 49. What's Daniel do in verse 49? When, it, when Daniel's promoted, what's he do? He doesn't forget his friends who prayed with him. Right? He doesn't forget his friends. He puts in a good word for them too. 
Lessons for today. I've given you three of them there. History is not determined by earthly rulers but by God. Every great ruler thinks he's calling the shots. But that's not so. The powers that be are ordained by God. Romans 13 tells us that, doesn't it? The powers that be are ordained by God. Folks, even voters, when they enter into the ballot booths, think they're shaping history. Let's be reminded we're not. Who's ultimately in charge? God's in charge. Sometimes God gives us who we need. Sometimes God gives us who we deserve. Second lesson. The best that man can build will come toppling down. And third and finally, Jesus Christ is the central figure in history. He's the rock. Philippians 2, 9-11 says, God exalted him and gave him a name that is above all names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So either... You will fall upon the stone and be broken, be saved. Or the stone one day, Jesus Christ, will fall upon you and crush you. You'll fall upon Him or He'll fall upon you. I pray that it's the former. Any questions or comments? Our time is almost up. Long lesson tonight. Take, take the little half page I gave you because that's, that's a little visual image of what Daniel 2 is talking about. Okay? And when we get into chapter 7 and following, these same points are going to be made. But... The kingdoms of the world are going to be looked at from chapter 7 on from God's perspective. And what we're going to see there is just images of wild, vicious beasts. But the beast of later on, and the statue here, the head of gold, chest of silver and so forth, and the beast later on, those images lay over top of one another describing the same kingdoms, okay? And so we're going to see a repetition in Daniel 7 and following of this overview that's given in Daniel chapter 2. And that's pointed out in that little half page I gave you as well. But Daniel chapter 2 is just that overview of human history. How God's in charge. God's wrapping history up because history is His story. He raises one kingdom up, he puts another down all the way till we get to the end of time when Jesus Christ comes back. And at that point, all earthly kingdoms are gone and he rules and reigns forever. He's in charge. Any questions? If you have questions, I'll let Frank answer them. Frank's going through a detailed about an hour or two hour study of Daniel every week with a group of men and 
They're ahead of me, so I'll let him answer the question. Any questions you got? Okay. Well, let's pray. Yes. Uh-huh. Okay, I want to see if you got the authentic 1611 in Middle English because if you can read it, I, I my hat's off to you if you can read it. <laughs> Very difficult. Sure. It does, it does not list the book, but it's it's in there for uh, just reading, and as notes are in the uh, Schofield Bible, hmm. it's just in there for it's not it's not a part of it's not a part of the Bible. Hmm. For your, uh, for. for information set and that's where you'll find the apocrypha that's where you'll find it in a lot of bibles if you find a bible that has it it'll be between the two testaments because the what we call the 400 silent years between malachi and matthew uh the apocrypha gives some great there's some great historical lessons that we that we wouldn't know much about that 400 silent years without the apocryphal writings but on Sunday nights here coming up in one of these series that we're in right now that we just started with uh, R.C. Sproul, we're going to see why uh, Protestants and Baptists do not include the Apocrypha in the uh, canon. Because we're going to see things like in the Apocrypha, doctrines and so forth, that, that um, don't line up with anything in, in either testament. And Jesus and the apostles never quoted from the Apocrypha or called it, referred to it as Scripture. When, when so many of the Old Testament books are quoted in the New Testament, the Apocrypha isn't. And, and we're, we're going to see a series of uh, five or six reasons why uh, we don't accept the, the Apocrypha. But generally where it is in yours between the two Testaments is where you'll quite commonly find it. But I do want to see that if it's... Truly a 1611.